Welcome to Tez Podagogy, the podcast about teaching for teachers. My guests for this episode are Professors Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, both of the University of California and both among the world's leading researchers into how memory works and what teachers need to know about memory. So I guess the first question is, you've spent much of your careers looking at memory. Uh, how certain are we now of how memory works? In, you know, do we know for sure that how the short-term memory to long-term memory process works, or, or are we still dealing in guesswork in some areas? It's a continuing, I mean, there's worldwide a great deal of research trying to uh, figure things out in more detail. Um, but I would say as far as the kind of basic architecture of how people learn and remember, uh, we know a great deal more than we did several decades ago. And it's also quite apparent that the what you might think of the architecture of how people learn and remember is very different than the sort of architecture of any standard recording device in almost every way that you can think of. And, and that may be why, uh, this is speculation, but um, there seems to be all this evidence that people do not have a good understanding how they themselves learn. And um, they may think they work more like some kind of recording apparatus. And uh, if you do, that will lead you to do a lot of non-productive things. Well, I was just going to add to that that um, I think, as as uh, Robert was saying, we our understanding of memory is come a long way in the last twenty or thirty years. But um, but people still hold on to our, our our ability to educate the public, so to speak, or all the learners out there in the world who want to learn more effect effectively and more. Uh, have what they put all so much time into learning last longer, um, they still hold on to a lot of misconceptions. So that side of things is definitely still in need of a lot of work to uh, constantly hear, even in the highly educated people, about muscle memory and concepts of that sort and uh, or visual learners versus auditory learners and so forth. So those there are a lot of misconceptions out there that are still uh, need to be worked on is what I'm trying to convey. Do you think that the uh, almost reluctance, I guess you call, or ignorance is to do with us being attached to a certain way we think we remember? Or do you think that people find it quite a complex uh, area to grasp? Is it, is it a sort of a willful ignorance, if you were, or is it just a lack of understanding? a good question, and I think there's a couple sources of it. Um, one is um, uh, people can think that um, how they were taught to learn by parents or maybe even teachers, you know, must be the way to learn, but some of this research has shown that parents and teachers can be a subject to some of these uh, illusions as as people themselves, and um, you know, there is. We, we once wrote um, a little piece that we called "Important Peculiarities of Human Memory," and uh, the notion behind that phrase was that these are very important aspects of human memory, 
but they're also peculiar in the sense that they don't kind of mesh with the way people might think of man-made recording devices like a CD disc or something where, you know, you things just get recorded and when they're on there they can be played back and in, in any number of ways uh, human memory differs markedly by that, you know, like uh, when you play something off a compact disc, for example, you leave it in the same state it was. But in human memory, when you retrieve something from memory, you make that more recallable in the future. It's a powerful learning event, and you make things in competition with it less recallable. And that's just one of many ways that that the uh, what you might think of as the architecture of, of uh, human learning memory differs from man-made devices. So there's a lot of possible sources, and then also, as you probably know from some of our work on desirable difficulties, things that make you improve fast, um, don't necessarily support long-term learning and transfer, things that are much harder and seem to slow down and slow you down, give you challenges, um, then enhance long-term learning memory. And that that's easy to see why that would lead people uh, to misassess. I mean, if they just take their current performance as a measure of learning, uh, they'll do a lot of things wrong in terms of long-term learning memory. Do you think um, that uh, the, the the point where something is desirable in difficulty for a student differs between students? And do you think that variation a teacher might see in how... So if they gave the same lesson to 30 kids, for example, and they, they believed that there was equal attention to what they were saying from those 30 children, would you expect a different... Uh, level of desirable difficulty for each student and and the time period for retrieval would that you know the, the spacing the interleaving would that you would you, would you expect that to be different or in a perfect laboratory condition where everything was equal would that be the same uh yeah i'll just chime in on this so um i think you sort of touched on two really important things one is um this modifier to difficulty desirable uh, is a very important part of, of doing this correctly. So just as you were saying, it's only desirable if it presents difficulties to the student, to the learner, that they can't, that although it challenges them, they can meet that challenge. They can overcome those difficulties with, with uh, effort. But um, if it's just totally impossible, then... Uh, it's not going to be a desirable difficulty. It becomes an undesirable one. Mm -hmm. So there is some, yes, some sort of tempering that you have to do uh, depending on certain ages that you might be teaching to or individuals, some who have much more background already in that area than uh, other students. So you have to, um, you definitely have to think about and be the teacher, instructor, or even you as a learner have to, uh, so it's just like with a video game, you wouldn't throw a, a, a player who's just starting that game into level four. You'd start at level one and see if, okay, you can quickly master that one, so move on to level two and so forth. So there is some, you know, fine-tuning you have to do. The other thing that you mentioned is um, 
I think, unfortunately, uh, it's a very widespread sort of belief, both among instructors and learners, that learning should be fun. Mm. If it's not fun and seemingly easy, then it's not um, sort of your thing. You should find something else to spend your time on. Uh, and that's so embedded that when they are when you're faced with a little bit of something that's a little bit confusing right now or challenging rather than thinking, okay, this is an opportunity for me to learn something I haven't understood before. You think of it as, oh, this is hard. This must not be for me. So there is that. Or you blame your instructor. Instructor is not teaching me correctly because they're making this challenging as opposed to just fun and easy. So why does that um why does that desirable difficulty uh embed itself in memory easier than something that is uh easy or fun why why is it, is it simply that our brain is working harder to understand it so which which strengthens the neural well, pathways or yeah i'll just add it's 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 sort of not working harder per se as much as uh, contending with these difficulties like spacing, variation, retrieval practice, and so on, um, it re that very contending with those exercises processes that we know enhance later learning. Mm -hmm. So having to think back, having to relate something to something else, that's known to uh, enhance learning. Uh, as a lot of work has demonstrated, to the degree you can get somebody to retrieve something or generate it rather than just present it to them, that's a powerful uh, effect on learning long term. So it's it's a matter that these particular set of um, difficulties in instruction or in managing your own learning um, kind of draw on or the degree that you contend with them. Uh, you exercise the processes we know to create a broader learning and uh, transfer and so on. And I might also just add to what Elizabeth said. Um, one reason individual differences are very important is just simply because all new learning builds on old learning. So it isn't, you know, every past some early point in their life, all new learning is a matter of kind of linking it up and relating it to what you already know. So if you're a teacher, uh, your your kids that you're working with are going to come in with very different sort of backgrounds in terms of what they already know and don't know in the fields that, that you're teaching. And, and that can be an important guide as to how to individualize learning is that... Um, Almost one way to look at it is almost like all the prior learning you've done is is potential for new learning, mm. and um, so right. that becomes crucial. Not something like uh, whether they have this or that learning style, but but just what do they bring in terms of uh, uh, precursors to what you want them to learn now. And I think once um, a student has a, a successful exposure to desirable difficulties and uh, just sort of, again, uh, sort of analogous to how they are persist, like with video games. Even though they keep being beaten and beaten and beaten, they 
they keep going until they finally succeed, and then that really hooks them. Uh, I think um, that's what you are trying to do with you know these individual students is get them to see that these um, difficulties and feelings like, ooh, I'm struggling with this, that those are just setting the sort of the opportunity for this discovery that you can do this, you can learn in this area, and then that becomes a very reinforcing and helps them to, um, you know, to think of, think of encountering a difficulty and a challenge in a different way rather than thinking it's just a turn off thinking okay this is something I just have to uh, maybe if I approach this a little bit differently um, they they develop much more of um, sort of much more effective coping strategies to that kind of situation as opposed to just turning it off I guess it's quite a nice argument for teacher uh, the power of a teacher in that sense then because it sounds like the teacher has to know every student in their class very well they have to have a good understanding of their background knowledge and then the ability to differentiate a lesson for those for those different starting points I guess I think that's a really important point I think uh, for example even at the college level I think one thing that characterizes a lot of um, gifted teachers is if they can remember back themselves or understand well enough what um, things the students they're teaching are interested in, what likely background they have and stuff, if they can take some new material and relate it to that. Um, so for example, we've done some talking to uh, um, coaches and instructors in sports like golf and other things and where we can talk about some of this work with uh, verbal conceptual materials in the laboratory, but then relate it to what happens on the soccer field or the golf course or something, that makes that much more effective. And that that can be difficult uh, because, you know, for example, as Elizabeth and I teach here, there's a lot of years between the experiences they've had and we've had and what they're involved in now and what we were involved in and so it can be a challenge to try to think what is the relevant background that these students have how do I link up this material and make make it seem relevant make it seem important make it seem understandable yeah. Yeah. that's a uh, one of the one of the very important roles that graduate students who serve as TAs in higher education anyway serve is that, you know, they're, they are much more in tune with um, the current culture and life of the undergraduate students, and so they can help us understand um, what we should be relating these things we want our students to, uh, to learn. Uh, that the things that are important to them and their current, you know, outside the classroom life, and um, so I think I think that that's and and I suppose with a teacher in like an elementary um, class, a, I don't know, just uh, maybe an intern. Uh, I don't know if you have that system there. Yeah, but sort of a TA system, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so. Um, those those people can be great 
sources of information with respect to what is it the kids are caring about uh, right now in this culture, how can I relate this better to uh, the other things they're doing outside the classroom. And that's because of what you're talking about of making connections to prior learning strengthens strengthens yeah. the yeah. retrieval process. So if you, if you can find a common interest or, or, or something that the, the, the kids already know, you can strengthen those processes. Yeah, I mean, people learn very readily, for example, if you can draw an analogy between something now and something they already know, mm. or sometimes even a sort of metaphor, uh, this thing you're trying to learn is like this thing in some other domain. Um, those connections are, are very powerful, partly just because of the very way that um, our knowledge is stored and linked and, and so on, so that, um, again, that, that means that um, the level of difficulty that's desirable is going to vary with individual students. Mm. So uh, to some degree, one kind of skill will be sort of titrating things in a way that's most effective. But I mean, overall, for a, a given class at a given level and so on, there's going to be certain types of principles like the ones we've emphasized, uh, spacing effects and retrieval practice and variation and so on that are that are general principles they hold for all students it's just how to implement them may differ with uh, different populations of students do you think that um so if, if you say have a class of 30 students obviously honing in on each of those 30 students uh individual background knowledge will be difficult how how general can you be is it okay to find a common sort of knowledge base among the 30 would you then split them into maybe two group three groups of 10 is does that would that be direct enough or i know in the states particularly there's this growth of personalized learning via computer programs where you can hone down into an individual's but profile i mean are any of those you know one student you know focusing on one student 10 students or 30 students are any of those better at making those sort of cultural um, connections, or, or is it okay over 30 students? I think that's a great um, question and issue to think about, and it's part of the real challenge that uh, instructors have when they are having to teach to a class of 30, 40, 50, or here at the university, sometimes we're teaching to a class of 300 plus students. <laughs> how do we, you know, how do we find a way to reach all of them um, and it's it's very difficult, to, but one one um, thing you need to consider, I would say, like if you're trying to introduce spacing techniques into your learning or interleaving into your learning, uh, you may need to uh, vary, like the spacing between successive uh, exposures to the material. Uh, for some students, it can be much longer, and they still are able to retrieve back to what you were talking about before and see how it relates. Mm. For other students, it may have to be a smaller gap, and you may have to go over it in, in more detail, and, you know, help them make that bridge or that relation, see what how they the one thing relates to the other. So it's, but I think it's, I still think it's doable, and it probably makes the whole 
activity of teaching much more enjoyable to the teacher too because mm-hmm. they can see start seeing more readily that they're reaching everybody and they're not leaving anybody behind just totally lost and we can also say that you know um, even if you don't get things perfect for every student um, introducing some gap before you come back to information again is going to be better for all students than what we call massing or blocking so for example the research is very clear that if you're a teacher you can't sort of cover something and maybe find out your students passed the test and then be done with it and assume it's there forever things that are really important need to be revisited later in the class and so much the better if they're revisited in a different context it's that sort of uh, spacing revisiting variation and stuff that will lead to really uh, a kind of knowledge formation that will remain accessible over a long period of time I mean you your students can pass the test but then you move on to other topics and so on and change and it can be can be almost like uh, a manipulation we studied a lot years ago a forget instruction you know you're, you're done with that you had the test you can forget that we go on to something else and if you really want it to be remembered you have to revisit that material later and so these th- these principles are very general and they hold for all students it, it, but how exactly you should um, fit them to an individual student can can be a challenge some of the cooperative learning techniques where in a big class you split students up and you have them discuss and do certain things with each other uh, to some degree now there there's more of a shared uh, knowledge base and it could be that on some topics another student can be more helpful to you as a learner than the teacher is mm-hmm. in terms of making connections and relations right. and that's interesting yeah. uh, Bob was saying about um, uh, well revisiting and so forth that uh, and and trying to determine from the teacher you know how quickly should I revisit for and so forth that's a great powerful tool that the instructor has is giving a lot of these sort of low-level practice uh, tests where are let's say uh, retrieval practice exercises uh, where the students have to retrieve things and so the teacher can pretty quickly see okay I've got a pool of students a set of students who uh, aren't quite ready to move on I have another set that is ready to to move on to something else and so then they can do some review with that group that's still struggling a little bit until they're uh, can you know can retrieve that information at a long at the at a longer interval so um, you know I, I realize down in the the trench in the classroom uh, it's this is hard work to try to figure all this out and to try to use these in a way that is is going to make your your students learning effective but um, also uh, there's issues about uh, what happens to your 
the, eva the student evaluations of your teaching. Mm. This has become a big issue because if, as this research suggests, a lot of these things uh, make pose challenges and make it appear that you may be learning more slowly, um, that may not be something students are happy with. <laughs> Plus, um, students kind of expect to be taught the way they have been taught. Mm. So if you incorporate all of these things we're talking about in your class, it will actually have sort of a disorganized look compared to what they've had before. Um, usual course syllabi and whatever are very structured to cover one topic at a time and so on in this sort of back and forth intermingling. So this is something we run in talking to um, some audiences about what will happen to the student evaluations of my teaching if I do all these things because they'll have to fill out the course evaluation before they ever have a chance to experience whether they have a, a long-term retention and understanding of that material or not. So um, that becomes an issue that we, we uh, it's a tricky one, and that's raised sometimes when we talk to uh, college teachers or even uh, hear public schools teachers. Mm. Uh, they can be worried about what their... Uh, the, the parents of the children they're teaching will think of, and maybe even what the school principal will think of these unusual things they're doing. I was going to so, say ob observations of teaching, and you can you can you know if yeah. you're doing the same content, but if you don't understand the process, it can be it can be difficult. I was wondering about the retrieval, and you know obviously the space you leave. So you, let's say you introduce some new content. Uh, you you connect it to some prior learning or some 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 knowledge that the student has, and then you want to leave a space and then test that again to see to see where they are. And I understand from what you've just said that that, that space will be different for different students. And then if you test them a couple of times, you're sort of honing the group that needs to retrieve again. But how should that testing be done? Because a lot of the teachers in the UK now are doing sort of what they call low low level testing. So they'll introduce a test at the beginning of the next lesson, then maybe in a month's time. But it's always the form of a sort of knowledge test. But something you said about different contexts of the knowledge um, made me think that perhaps testing in a sort of Q&A sort of format perhaps might not always be the best option for that retrieval. Well, I'll, I'll say a few things, and Elizabeth's done a lot of work on this. Uh, Recently, in our lab, we've been really looking at all aspects of uh, testing as a pedagogical technique, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of things to say about it. One we've already said, which is a major virtue of testing is it triggers retrieval processes and that can be more important for learning than any restudy opportunity would be, mm -hmm. but also uh, there's multiple other benefits. One is um, tests help students identify what they do and do not understand much better than simply letting them look at the material again. Mm -hmm. So it has that kind of metacognitive benefit that it, it, it sort of tells them where to go, what they need, and so on. The other thing we found in actual classes is if you introduce lots of low-stakes quizzing 
sometimes no stake quizzing. You just, as a, at the start of the class, at the end of the class, you ask a few questions about what went before and so on. Um, you'll often get groans from students when you say that you're going to do this every class. <laughs> and then teachers, including us, but lots of other colleagues have found now in the course evaluation at the end of the course, that's one thing students are very positive about, mm -hmm. these no-stakes testing. They don't feel like they're being assessed. They feel like that's part of the enabling the learning process, which it really is. And recently, um, here especially, work by Elizabeth and a couple grad students, we've been finding that pretests of great value even uh, when students can't answer any of the questions. So if you ask them the questions about the material that hasn't been covered yet, they will get virtually none of the correct answers. But then that turns out to facilitate their learning when they do get that material. So that's something we've been exploring just recently. That's fascinating. So a new topic, say you wanted to study the Romans, and you and you did a, a low-stakes quiz at the start of that syllabus or scheme of work, and, and they got no answers right, but that's, that's still productive in terms of their long-term learning in, in, that, in that topic area. Correct. And we're, we're, um, we're still looking at at all the situations where this would apply. Uh, so far, we, we definitely know it applies in a classroom as well as in the lab. Um, I think the tests need to be, uh, the tests, these pretests need to be constructed uh, correctly in a way that will get the student to think about the what could possibly be the right answer to this. Um, but then, um, what it, it seems we, and, and now why then it, it potentiates their learning of the actual material once it's presented to them is still a little unclear. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're struggling with that. One thing is probably it makes them more interested in the material. Uh, just the fact that they weren't quite sure what was the answer to that question, and so when the teacher gets to that part of the lecture, say, or that part of the lesson, or they're reading about it, uh, they maybe pay more attention because they think back to what they, how they tried to answer the question, and now they see, oh, you know, I, I see now why I wasn't thinking the right way, or I had got the wrong answer, or so forth. But um, it's not just that because. <laughs> We're also finding, like when we give them a, um, say, the pretest is a multiple choice test, mm -hmm. uh, where some of the incorrect alternatives are ones that are related uh, to information that they're going to be learning about, but they're not the correct answer for that particular question. Um, then they not only learn better the correct answer to that question, but they learn better the information that was that was related to these incorrect alternatives. So it, it like it piques their interest, I guess, for all of those things. Now it doesn't the weird thing is that when they then read the text that contains the answers to these questions, they don't spend longer on that information, the information that is related to those questions, 
which you might think they would do. Uh, if you just time them how long they spend on that information, they're actually a little bit faster encoding that information, and, and which you can tell because they get the answers. They, they then are able to answer a later question about that information um, uh, more often and better than had they, you know, not been given that pretest. But um, so, just exactly how the under what the underlying mechanism is that's creating this advantage for the exposure to a pretest is not clear. And it's and we've looked at we've compared it to say, well, let's just give them the the important facts that we're going to be testing them on. We'll have them study those things before they go to before they read the material or hear the lecture. That doesn't have this benefit. Uh, and, or just answer, don't do a multiple choice, just give them a, like a cued recall question. What is the so-and-so that there would have, you know, either be a short answer or a couple words answer to. Um, that does make them learn that, that particular answer better, but it doesn't give them the advantage that a properly constructed multiple chest multiple multiple choice pretest does because they don't learn about all all the uh, incorrect alternatives as well they just learn that one thing so um it's as bob was indicating we're just beginning to explore this um benefit to learning uh and and uh, so we can't tell you exactly why it works. We just know that it does seem it to. It does seem to work. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I guess the final question is: is if so, say we've done, we've started a new scheme of work. We we've done our pretest. We have introduced the the topic in relation to some previous knowledge. We've then done maybe two or three retrievals of the, of that um, that information. Do you get to a point with some students where on the third time they've still retained it? they're done, um, but maybe some students will need a fourth or a fifth retrieval, or do all students need an equal number of, of retrievals, if that makes sense? I think, again, it'll depend on prior knowledge, but probably the most crucial factor is whether that information or procedure, knowledge, whatever it is, will it, uh, is it likely to be used by the learner in their job, say, or whatever. So if you think of this in the context of job training, mm -hmm. something that you, um, some skill or some knowledge that you do that then on a daily, weekly, whatever basis is going to be accessed as part of a job, that is going to stay accessible. Mm -hmm. But it's a fundamental property of of human learning memory and it has adaptive aspects that we don't have time to go into is that when you stop using any knowledge you know or skill you have it will no matter how well learned it is it will become inaccessible eventually mm. so uh, un unless things keep being accessed um, they will become inaccessible. They are still in memory. We can identify that by other procedures like relearning, recognition, and so on. But so that in a, in a practical environment, 
job training or something like that, the considerations would be quite different for when you're training something that's going to be maybe used on a daily or regular basis versus training something that like uh, when I was consulting at a nuclear training center, there were procedures, complicated procedures people would have to do whenever the uh, reactor was shut down. And that was unpredictable, but on average it happened every 18 months. So if you think people are not going to have to use this uh, until 18 months later, that has different implications for what the what the training should be like than if it's something uh, that's regular part of work. And so that would apply in educational context too. If this is something that's going to come up in the next class in the context of other material and so on, uh, that's going to help it stay accessible. But it's just a fundamental property of human memory that uh, we are incredibly vast, virtually unlimited in terms of storage capacity, uh, but then in terms of what all is retrievable, uh, that's a small fraction of that, and that can depend on current cues and context and so on. I mean, if we knew you in detail, for example, we could start asking you questions about great friends you had during schooling or during other activity and so on, and many of those names you would not be able to recall. We could demonstrate easily that those names exist in your memory, but basically uh, the way human memory works, and this, this is a long story, I shouldn't have started at <laughs> this point, but basically we need to be able to recall what's current, what's relevant to right now, and the fact that things we're not using become inaccessible actually helps us recall the most relevant information right now. But as I mentioned, that's another longer story. I can't let you go without um, asking you how working together as a, as a couple has been for you, as well as you know, you're professionals, you, you, you're you know, living your home life and your work life together. Are, are you a harmonious couple? <laughs> you want to take a crack at that, Elizabeth? <laughs> Um, yeah, we don't separate our work life and our home life very much at all, um, but um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's kind of it probably for couples who can work well together. I think that it's a um, kind of keeps the relationship fresh because mm. you're always like Bob and I are always getting into new ideas or new ways of thinking. Uh, we often work with the same graduate student, and uh, so we kind of keep having, I don't know, sort of what, we keep having many, many generations of uh, children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Professional children. Professional children. Um, so I think it, it keeps, uh, it's, I think that couples can have some, you know, often have two very different careers, but then maybe have some extracurricular activity that they really enjoy together, like hiking or biking or mm. whatever, and that kind of serves the same purpose in a lot of ways. Now, we did have a long period of time. You know, there were uh, nepotism rules in the United States about uh, that pro prevented... Um, 
both members of a married couple from holding positions in the same academic department and so on. Eventually that was overturned, partly because it turned out then the evidence was it was always the woman who would make sacrifices and accept some other kind of job. Um, But even after that rule was uh, no longer uh, imposed, you were still expected for quite a while to work on different topics. Mm. So our first real joint publication wasn't until 23 years after we were married. Wow. There there are quite a few footnotes thanking each other, but that was partly because of the prevailing attitudes at that time. Now that has changed a lot, and it can become even a strategy for... um, universities and departments that are trying to grow and build and stuff, uh, they can often recruit a couple where they might have trouble recruiting either one of those people individually. So th- things have changed a lot. and um, For the better, I think. I mean, for the good of education, you two got together at some point and uh, have really changed the way things are happening in the UK. So I think it's a, it's a good combination. Oh, great. Well, thank you for your time, both. It's been really informative and... Um, Wish you all the best for the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Bye.